remember the name. And my goodness, it's gone way down to Swansea. Finishes off in style. I was, I was sat in the cabinet room and I was like hosting me on me. Yeah. The big man, the fridge is open. He's flown like a gazelle. What can Chris Gale do? He goes low. Oh, you rat. You've got a man beside you. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Right, hello, welcome to The Wrong and Everybody, the place where cricket never stops, even when the cricket does stop. I'm Bertie Moores, and today for a women's cricket special, to cover everything from Shafali Verma to Katy Perry, I'm joined by Surrey's finest, Ollie Godden. Hello. And on the line, we've also got Sports Beats Ella German, who was in Australia recently covering the T20 World Cup. Pleasure, thank you for having me. Off the back of the T20 World Cup, and with major changes currently underway in the domestic system, it seems like there's a load of momentum behind the game at the moment, a lot of changes going on behind the scenes. So later on, we'll be talking to the ECB's director of the West Midlands region for the women's game, Lauren McCloyd, about the new domestic setup. But first, I think we should focus on the international front. And Ella, you must be one of the last people in the world to actually watch a live game of professional cricket. Yeah, definitely was. And it already feels like a lifetime ago. I was just saying to Ollie, it's only, I think it's a month today since the, the final, but it already feels like years and years ago that I was there. Um, no, it was brilliant. As soon as I found out I was going and obviously knew what the tournament had been set up to achieve, looking at them trying to fill the MCG for the final on, on the um, 8th of March, um, as it were, and knew it was going to be a tournament that was really trying to break new ground for women's cricket. We're so excited to get out there and you know, when I did it it lived up in sort of except for the semi final debacle with the rain and such, except for that the whole tournament certainly lived up to its billing in terms of what it was set out to achieve for women's sport, but also in the quality of the cricket itself. Saw some really, really exciting close games and wasn't just Australia dominating game by game as they have been doing in women's cricket over a number of years. Saw them have a few scares as well. Um, and then, yeah, seeing the whole of Australia really getting getting involved and getting, getting behind the tournament was really fantastic as well. Yeah, I think it was really obvious to notice that there was a lot of weight behind um, the tournament, if you like, the, the country really got behind the tournament. What was the atmosphere like at the grounds and at the games? I'm sure we'll come on to the semi-final debacle, as you say, in a little bit. But in as a general mood, what, what was it like being there? Yeah, it was brilliant. So I think the marketing for the tournament was done really well. So the first place I went to was Adelaide. That was for the warm-up. So wasn't in the fourth rows of the tournament as such but you know the first thing I saw coming off the plane was a big sort of welcome to Adelaide T20 World Cup I went to Perth for the start of the tournament and sort of the activation around the city was great I was there sort of about two days before games started and walked down into the centre where they had sort of a massive fan zone family and kids and everything um, getting involved in that which was really great and when we sort of talk about the figures that are at these games they aren't going to seem compared to the final they're not going to seem particularly outstanding but I think the um, highest attendance in Perth at the WACA was about five and a half thousand which for a women's cricket game is pretty good I think for an international match it was sort of their highest at the the ground I think the atmospheres were the best when I went over to Melbourne for sort of the second leg of the group stage and the Australia New Zealand sort of winner takes all for the semi-final was sold out there and with it being in Melbourne on that side a lot of the Kiwis came over as well and 
and that was great. But yeah, that said, even even if the numbers didn't don't really scream that the attendances would be fantastic, the games were all pretty well supported. Even at the warm ups, there was sort of a pack of Thailand fans would all come mm. along to cheer their country on in their first World Cup, which was really nice and really special. So it felt a bit of a party atmosphere almost, and, and some of the games that we saw. I mean, in the Thailand is a, is a good example. We saw them dancing and, and stuff on social media, just a real um, sort of expression of, of how much fun was being had which I suppose can sound a bit patronising but it's quite an important thing to to broadcast in, in a major tournament. Yeah I think that's sort of what the message they were trying to get across and sort of the way it was marketed as the big dance and they sort of wanted that sort of atmosphere and I think that's the best way to perhaps get new fans who may not you know going to a cricket match may not have been the first thing they wanted to do in their summer's originally to get them involved and get them there and actually see that oh this is a really fun thing to go and be a part of and yeah it was brilliant and every yeah most games I can think of the fans are brilliant I remember there as an England fan obviously as a journalist I took that hat off at the South Africa game where they beat us and under the press box was a huge South African contingent and yeah being really loud and excited and yeah it was brilliant to be brilliant to be a part of the tournament as a whole. But with the World Cup Every single World Cup, be it in no matter the sport, no matter the gender, it might even be Olympics, there's always a lot of talk about whether it felt like it really made a difference in moving that sport in a certain direction. Did you feel that on the ground in Australia? Because in Britain, it was quite hard for us to watch a lot of the games or get a feeling for it because it's on in the middle of the night. I think because it's hard to really judge how much traction it's picking up when mm. you're properly in the thick of it and you're in a press box every day with people who are living, breathing every single ball that's bowled for the tournament because for us it's obviously going to be you know the heart of everything we're doing for a month. But I think compared to previous tournaments, just seeing, yeah, like you said, how much traction it got on social media. And I saw people that I know who I've never really seen tweet about cricket as well following games and tweeting that in places all over the world as well and um, obviously the, the figures that came out I think last week about the tournament really speak for themselves and um, how many numbers their videos are being viewed by and um, the, the reach that their social media work was getting as well um, but yeah as I said in, in Australia like I said the activation around the cities was great and um, so many people getting on board with it. I can't really compare that with how tournaments have been received there before because I haven't been there before. But yeah, certainly it seems like, you know, if I got into a taxi on my way to the ground and people would always say, oh, what are you doing over in Australia when they recognise the British accent? I said, oh, I'm working on the T20 World Cup. Every sort of taxi driver or, you know, waitress, whoever I spoke to would have something to say about it. They'd sort of yeah. know something that was going on. It wasn't just like a, oh, right, cool. Okay, moving on what's that or you know oh who's playing they sort of say oh I watched a bit of that last night and Chamari Atapatu hit that great six mm. so they'd sort of know something that had gone on which yeah was probably the first for me I don't think I've ever really sort of seen people having that sort of insight in women's cricket until back here for any tournament before. Are you able to put your finger on what Australia have done to make it or what they did to make it such success because it was probably a long time in the making hasn't it with with the uh, women's big bash etc cetera, etc cetera. what do you think sort of contributed to, to it being such a success yeah I think as you said it was quite a long time in the making and in the planning and um, out there we were sort of working on behalf of the ICC so we actually spoke to them a bit about this over some drinks and they sort of explained to us how they had this vision and sort of set out with that final goal of filling the MCG so I think in terms of what they were doing they always had that 
to strive for. They had like a definite goal in sight of what they wanted this tournament to be. And the marketing surrounded it, as we discussed, with sort of the big dance and the, the fun aspects for it. But I think the reason why it worked so well is the fact that it was held in Australia. Like as a country, I guess the the soil there is quite fertile, if you like, for women's sport events to really thrive. The biggest thing I noticed there, and what we, what we can notice from afar as well, is that uh, women's and men's sports are treated pretty equally over there compared to, you know, like nowhere I've been before, really. You know, like walking, I'm mean, walking through Melbourne one afternoon and walking past a big sports bar, like loads of people outside, and there's a women's AFL match on. You'd walk past bars and pubs, and there'd be, you know, reruns of the T20 World Cup matches going on, and that doesn't really happen in England. The way they perceive men and women in sports already is quite equal, so it's set up quite nicely for them to be able to put on a great tournament. I personally have quite a bias general rule of thumb with uh, sports tournaments that every single one should be hosted in Britain, Germany, Australia, <laughs> or the USA because it will always be full and it will go so smoothly. Yeah, in Australia and in America when it comes to something like football, um, especially so, I thought looking back at what the MCG attendance was trying to beat was the... 90, just over 90,000 attendants for the USA against China in the 1999 World Cup final. Looking in papers as well in the mornings and in coffee shops and just seeing what's broadcast, it's just, I don't know exactly what the stats are, but it seemed to me pretty equal, pretty 50 50. Mm. I'm walking about everywhere in Australia, you'd see Elise Ferry's face on a billboard or a bus <laughs> in most places you went to. And it's sort of the same sort of trend that's happening now in that, you know, why the lionesses have been able to be successful and gain a lot of traction is people know who Lucy Bronze is and people know who Ellen White is because of the um, goals that she scored and the performances she's had and I think it's just getting people to be able to connect with those characters if you like like a lot I know so many people who have gone to see El Clasico because they wanted to see Messi and Ronaldo at the time and that you go to sport as well to see those big names and those characters I don't think it's something that can happen overnight it's sort of the question is how how do you get people to connect with those characters if they aren't mm. already involved in the sport and I think it's just yeah giving them as much of a spotlight as we possibly can for people to really get to know them just finally on the World Cup it'd be remiss to have you here as quote-unquote an England fan as well as a journalist and, and not discuss England's performance what did you what did you make of how they got on out there I don't think there was the same um maybe energy behind the team as there might have been two years ago as I say when they won the World Cup um maybe a bit more of a spotlight on Australia and India is that how it felt when while you're out there or, or was it I mean they were knocked out in unfortunate circumstances I suppose so it's, it's hard to say but what, what was your feeling about how they got on and, and where they can go I suppose from here yeah I guess as you said I think India sort of stole everyone's attention for that opening game performance as well and I think that sort of set up that context as well that a lot of people wanted to see that Australia in the final to sort of Australia get their revenge as well. And um, But when it comes to England, I think they didn't seem to look like they'd quite figured it out in terms of their um, batting order. Um, so we sort of top two. I think Danny White maybe had one half decent mm. performance. Other than that, it was pretty cool. But I think they didn't, from the start, didn't really look like they knew what their best batting order was. And being out in the warm-ups for, um, in Adelaide, I think there was one of the games where they had Brunt batting at three. And I think that sort of summed up how <laughs> yeah. they really just didn't know who to, who to put where, which sort of came around to and bite them in the end of it as well. But I don't think it was all bad. I think a lot of the attention has 
um, gone onto that and you know think about the Thailand game. Where I think it was a Thailand game where um, Jones and Wyatt were both out for ducks <laughs> right early mm-hmm. on, and yeah, thankfully Heather might have stepped in and saved, saved the day. Um, but I don't think it was all bad. Like looking at you know Nat Silver was brilliant throughout. I thought. I think what was the most promising thing to come out of the tournament for England was the performance of the young spinners, Sophie Eccleston and Sarah Glenn. I thought, yeah, they were superb. And looking at the fact that they're both only 20 years old as well. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, some players earlier, like Catherine Brunt and Andy Shrubsell coming towards the latter end of their careers, it was really um, promising to see that we've got some different young players to come in and then um, fill the boots. So, yeah, I think a lot of attention's going to go on maybe look at it in the sense that we underperformed but we didn't really we got to the semi-finals and didn't have mm. a chance to play against India and we don't know what could have happened and had we did and their one game we did lose against South Africa was incredibly close and I don't know yeah I don't know how me and Dupree's pulled off that six to win it in the final over mm. it was yeah heartbreakingly close to lose out on that one so I don't think it's all doom and gloom I think they just need to sort of finesse a few things and work a few more things out. Was that the mood, the general mood you got from within camp as well? I'm sure you spoke to England players and, and got an idea of how they felt they, they went. Was that a similar idea? It's not, it's not all doom and gloom and, and there's positives to take out of the experience? Yeah, I think speaking to the players before the tournament, that's exactly what they were saying as they were working out um, how things were going to work under Lisa. I think a lot of them have worked with her before because she used to be an academy coach at the mm. ECB. So a lot of them came through with her and a lot of them, the likes of Siva, played at Perth Scorchers under her as well. So um, I don't think it was such a big transition as some may think it is with her in charge. But yeah, I think a mixture of the uh, younger players coming in that I mentioned. And yeah, I think they didn't quite have enough time to properly fine tune their order ahead of the tournament. And that sort of lack of confidence Mm. you could really see in some of the latter games and the likes of Jones as well, who never really um, pulled off and got underway. But I I think there's a lot of potential there. And um, yeah, hopefully they can get back back on the um, growth as soon as possible. So the hundred on the men's side has almost been treated in some quarters like the apocalypse incarnate, and that there's a lot of good and bad things potentially for it for the domestic men's game. Uh, would you say that the positives for it for the women's game are arguably much bigger than the men's game? Yeah, I absolutely would. I think the reason why the 100 could be really positive for the women's game is that it has this potential to break the bubble in terms of fans and getting new people engaged with women's cricket as a sport. I think, you know, we look back at the Kia Super League, which, you know, went some way in improving the domestic setup um, of women's cricket in this country, but never really properly expanded the horizons to for the game really to take lift off. Um, so I think in so like the 100, which is quite new and exciting and fresh and coupled with the men's team as well, could really offer a chance for not just fans of cricket who are going to be going to watch the men's team to get involved, but perhaps even um, new fans of cricket to really come in and engage in a new format um, as well. Obviously, we've sort of throughout the podcast had the sort of talk on you know the benefits of having a women's standalone event and having things coupled with men's I think in the situation where you're really wanting to 
drive um, the domestic level of the game. You know, I'm not talking international here. Then I think it's really useful to pair it with the men's side of things where, you know, as things stand, people are in Surrey are going to know more about Joffre Archer than they do Danny Wyatt, but they can get to know more of the England women's players and the international players by having them um, alongside um, the men's in, in the same competition. Seems to me that the hundreds aim is really just to get you know new audiences involved with the women's game. Do you think there's uh, a specific aim to get young girls and, and young women who maybe not, haven't watched much women's cricket before engaged in the sport? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's you know as sort of a young woman myself, I guess, and knowing other young women, I don't think cricket has ever really been put out there as a sport that's exactly cool maybe the same could be said mm. on, on the men's side but I don't really I've never I don't know many girls at all who'd really outside of sports and the sports journalism area that would really you know be interested in cricket or get excited about cricket so I think the way the hundreds been set up and you know the, the way the uh, when the matches are going to be played and sort of how they you know seem to want it to be sort of an after work sort of you know, drinks occasion that people can go down to could do really well in getting um, more people involved. But yeah, I think there's a fresher approach can get people, really unlock people's interest in it. And I guess a lot of cricket over the past nine months or so is going to hinge off the fact that the men have just won the World Cup and a lot of people, you know, everyone knows who's, you know, likes of Ben Stokes are now and Joffrey Archer are now. And if a women's event coupled with that can benefit off the growing interest in that as well. I think it's just sort of need something that's got that element of sort of star potential to sort of unlock mm. new people's interest in it. And if you say, oh, you know, we're going to go and see the 100 and there's going to be these players playing, people are going to be way more likely to go than if you mentioned the Kia Super League and say, oh, Western Storm are playing down in Hove or, mm. or wherever. People don't really have anything to connect it with. So I think that could be a big positive effect. I don't, you know, don't really want to go on forward forever saying that women's sport should be capitalizing off the success of men's you know, it's all with the aim of making women's sport its own successful entity but I think there is a really good opportunity here to put two and two together that will help the women's game to grow as well absolutely very well put as well I suppose the other side of it is is making the stand of cricket better as well we've got some exciting young talent uh, that you mentioned in the light of, of the world cup domestically and they're going to have the chance to to rub shoulders with the best in the world what do you think it could do for for those players as much as anything else yeah absolutely because obviously the only chance that not all of them just some of them are getting at the moment is down the big bash to play these likes of players but you know you look at Meg Lanning coming over Alyssa Healy coming over so Susie Bates playing for Southern Brave and she, you know in the short formats of the game I think she's still the um, top run scorer in, in women's cricket across T20. So obviously going over to the hundreds will be a very good asset to have in that team for players to learn off in the shorter formats of the game. So yeah, absolutely. I think it, um, some of those players were overplaying in, in, in the KS, KSL, but hopefully um, having them sticking around in the hundred as well and getting to, as you said, rub shoulders of them should, yeah, ho- hopefully do a good job in then helping our domestic talent to grow. And also what we're hoping for, I guess, is helping them to grow on a bigger stage. But if what the hundred is setting out to do can achieve it in terms of attendances and getting more people involved, I think the I was reading the attendances for the KSL and that the 2017 final was played in front of three and a half thousand in Hove, which you know, sounds good on its own when it was cricket. But in order for our players to be able to you know, compete with the Australians who were able to 
you know, hold off that pressure in front of 86,000 at the NCG. We're not going to be getting crowds of that number in the hundreds, but, you know, getting them in a tournament that will hopefully have a bit more of a push behind it, a bit more of attendances to play under. Um, could really do, do them good to grow as cricketers as well. How much damage do you think it could do if, if the 100 doesn't take place this year? I think you mentioned wanting to harness the energy of the of the World Cup and the, and the Men's World Cup before that. How much, How much? What effect will it have if we are delayed by an extra year before this 100 gets underway? Yeah, it's a massive shame, isn't it? Because sort of women's cricket at its peak after that um, T20 World Cup final and yeah I think there's no doubt that it's going to do a lot of damage in all spheres of sport whether it's male female you know seeing countless things coming out every day of struggles that clubs and players are facing um, I certainly wouldn't like to be an athlete right now and <laughs> trying to you know keep up your strict um, nutrition training regimes in this sort of scenario but it's completely out of all of our control um yeah I think there's no doubt that it's going to take away some momentum, but I think we can only hope that when everything does get back to normal, we are in the swing of things that hopefully people will be even more eager to jump in and get involved. And, you know, perhaps this time sitting in isolation, people might have, you never know, got, got more of an interest in women's cricket to pass the time or something like that. So yeah, we can only hope that the momentum's still there when we come back. But um, yeah, I think we something that I think clubs should be doing on social media is having that real drive that real push to get people's attention and get get them involved absolutely Ella thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast we're going on to speak about domestic uh, cricket in a bit for that we'll have special guest Sachin uh, Agarwal on to speak about that but honestly to have your, your expertise on, on the show has been fantastic and really grateful for, for you giving up your time pleasure Hi there, thanks so much for listening. And if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, make sure to drop us a follow or subscription. And if you can, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It would mean the absolute world to us. Anyway, back to the show. Welcome back to The Wrong and everybody, and welcome along, Satch Agawal, for the second half of the show as well. All right, mate. Thanks for having me. We're here focusing on women's cricket today, and Ella German just spoke to us before about the Women's T20 World Cup and the international game of the 100. But Ollie internally within England there's actually been a almost seismic change to the organisation of the women's game hasn't there? Yeah absolutely so at the back end of last year the ECB announced £20 million worth of funding to sort of restructure the elite portion of domestic women's cricket and it split the country up into eight different regions which will all offer five full-time contracts something that the the women's game has never seen in this country before Um, and it means there's 40 full-time non-international professional players in the country for the first time which is which is fantastic Um, to find out sort of more about what is going on uh, in the regions I spoke to Laura McCloyd Laura is a former England all-rounder and is now director of the newly formed West Midlands Women's Cricket Limited and she had loads of interesting stuff to say just quickly I'd like to apologize for the poor sound quality on this we've tried our best with it but Laura's internet ultimately wasn't quite up to the task of giving us something which was a decent sounding audio but either way she has some loads of stuff good stuff to say and I hope you enjoy it. The creation of this stems from the fact that um, women's and girls now is were the biggest growth area that ECB are going to invest in. So mm. they've got their inspiring generation strategy and in it they've got a women's and girls pillar, which has never really happened before. It's women's and girls has run through the, the, the strategic scenes, but this is now separate. So ECB are investing 20 million quid over two years 
and one of the things that they're going to invest in is this regional structure. Yeah. And what they're going to do is create an elite uh, women's domestic competition, which will consist of 50 overs this year, fingers crossed, and then uh, 50 over in T20s next year, and there's going to be eight regions. Essentially what they're also doing is creating 14 new professionals. So there's 20, circa 20 England century contracted players at the moment mm-hmm. with, I think it's about eight rookies and the uh, century contracted girls, players, they will decide in conjunction with the uh, Jonathan Finch, who's director of England cricket, where they will play their regional cricket. We're not envisaging that they're going to be around the regional structure too much. They might play a few games, but their programme will still remain quite central. So the rookies will then be absorbed by the regions, and then uh, what we will need to do as as regions is is find these five full-time players uh, that will have um, almost an all-year-round programme. And we will find we will have staff in order to prepare them technically, tactically, physically, um, that sort of thing. Um, and then we've got to find a, a wider squad to play the games. Yeah. Okay. And they will be uh, they will be on a pay to play basis, so they don't get the sent the the regional contract. They're not a full time professional, but certainly they've got a, an opportunity to earn some money from from playing in this regional competition. So would you say that this sort of the, the restructuring is that aimed at elite development or, or grassroots progression, getting more numbers into the game, or as you say, it's sort of I suppose a tent over all those areas. Ours will be about just getting uh, um, more people involved and getting them training full time now what we're hoping is is because women's cricket is not massive that um the benefit of us getting more century contracted players in will mean that we can deploy those to go and inspire the next generation sure and is that that sort of like a trial process is it or do you always have like a shortlist in your mind of the best players from from the various counties that the west midlands region has to offer so the way we're seeing it at the moment is that um, it's, it's, it, the ECB's line is that it's open market. It's yeah. a bit like what's happened in the in the hundred. It's totally open market mm-hmm. there. What the eight regions need to do, they need to come together to make sure that we have got all of the available best players. Uh, on, a, on a professional contract sitting in a regional structure because what we could have is lots and lots of talent sitting down south. There's a dearth sure, yeah. in East Mids um, and there's, there's low, not as many in Lancashire and there's loads in Yorkshire. Yeah. So I think what we're trying to do is work together as the regions, but these contracts that the girls are going to be offered are not going to be anything so that they can move, you know, they can relocate. So we've just got to be really sensible about it. And if you asked any of the regional directors, I'm sure if if they know their patch, they will go, yeah, I know who my five players are. But my approach to it is is for the head coach to own that process. Okay. Yeah, sure. I suppose it's a reflection that the restructuring is about anything of, of more impetus in the women's game you said that there's a pillar specifically for for the women's game and and yeah. that is a national trend i suppose isn't it trying to trying to sort of get the game going fully yeah, now. yeah definitely definitely the, the other can't remember exactly what they are but the other aspects are within part of this 20 million quid um can group girls cricket there's um 
something to do with clubs uh, and facilities as well. So, you know, they've really done their homework on, on this uh, as to what, how does how does a goal uh, you know, get from that first feel of the bat and the ball mm. uh, right the way through to being an England player. Mm. I'm interested to know your opinion on the on the Super League and whether you thought it was right a uh, right time for that sort of ebb to to an end because it sort of felt like it got picked up a little bit last two it years did. maybe yeah. um, increased exposure and, and the talent yeah. coming through was was quite good and then it sort of decided it was the end of its time yeah um, I think it was it was a it was a competition that was gaining traction and not just on the field but off the field as well I think uh, Southern Vipers and Western Storm did a great job mm. of connecting with the clubs and connecting with uh, geographical patches I think by going to eight uh, regions now albeit now we're going to dilute the talent somewhat but I think over a period of time that will serve us well um, it, it is a point that in most women's sport at which you go when do we when do we increase this sure yeah uh, without ideally diluting the, the standard of the competition and the purpose of the competition mm. so ECB have taken a bit of a uh, a punt on on eight. There was, you know, some talk about, well, can it be ten? Can it be twelve? And I think we've probably got the right number here, and it, mm. it cutely lines up with with the hundred. Yeah, sure. And without wanting to end on on too much of a sound note, how much impo- how important is it, I should say, to try and get some cricket on this year in, in the light of <laughs> in the light of what's going going on, both for for morale and and actually the practical implications of the fact that you've got you've set up this this hub yeah. and, and there might not be any cricket on. I think it. I think it is. So we've got a call uh, at the end of this week uh, with ECB to start thinking about what, how we're we going to change, how we're we going to make the most of of this situation here. I think it would be great to get some cricket on. The beauty of it is that we haven't got any dates set in stone and we haven't got any venues. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So we're in a great position. Uh, we've got a period of time where we might play this competition, and there's a bit of fluidity, flexibility there in order to where to play it so I'm confident that we'll get something on them I think it will start in earnest uh, in October time so the winter that's when we will probably pick our our five full-time players Mm. and they will begin their winter programme there and we'll look at uh, opportunities for them to make sure that they're ready and hitting the ground running for for next year with the 50 and the 20 over and then hopefully go through the 100. So clearly some big waves being made out of the domestic women's cricket scene at the moment. I think the most obvious thing to come out of that chat was the effect that restructuring will have across the board from raising the standard of the game through to the grassroots and inspiring the next generation. I think women's cricket has needed galvanising for some time and the Kia Super League was working towards that. But then this is maybe the leap that if rolled out correctly, really can grow the game exponentially. It really does seem an almost revolutionary thing to do. It's something which... I've never personally come across in other sports. It might happen in America. It might happen in other parts of the world. But the idea of equally dispersing the talent across the country and in particular making an extra 40 full-time professionals beyond the centrally contacted England players. So it's, it's a big leap. Yeah, it is absolutely. I think when we speak about it now, it sort of sounds like the obvious thing to do, doesn't it? Make or give more women professional contracts so they can train to play at a better standard. Yeah, it, it wasn't. Uh, in place, there obviously were contracts for for Kia Super League players, but they needed to have jobs outside of that. So now to have forty players who will supplement the uh, the England team and a bank of players who who hopefully will, will 
become future England players or, or benefit from having more training is, is something that can only be for, for the betterment of the game, really. Like for me looking in, I think that that spread is something which is important because it's one thing just creating like two or three professional teams, but I think it is quite canny spreading them in eight different parts of the country because it then means that you can try and organically grow different teams all at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is maybe a danger that, as Laura spoke about in her interview, that there's a real richness of, of talent potentially in, in Surrey and Yorkshire and Lancashire and maybe not so much in, in the Midlands. So they have got to be careful that, that across the board they're working together and, and trying to pick up the players with, with the most potential who could benefit most from uh, a full-time contract. But I do agree that it could only be a good thing that spreading the, the teams out uh, around the country um, should be to the betterment uh, of the game. Do you think actually in the Midlands they could have a uh, could have an advantage of having a, a very large Asian community to target to really um, build on because I, I I don't think there is that much participation in the women's Asian community but if can if they can promote that quite well you know you've got a massive target mark there in the Midlands you know Birmingham Leicester Nottingham whatever it'd be ideal for them really to try and to try and launch themselves into into something bigger yeah and I really think that's sort of what I got out of the conversation with Laura is that where other areas maybe have a richness of talent they already know about she's got an opportunity to introduce the game to, to a market who haven't maybe necessarily tried it or experienced it but as you say the, the Asian market if you like will, will know about cricket it's, it's, it's very popular in those parts but maybe not have, have played it and she's got an opportunity there to, to introduce it so her job in the Midlands is maybe slightly different to the job of, of the director of cricket in, you know, maybe a southern region of, uh, of players who are already in the game, maybe. As the two of you were saying about how in the Midlands there's large Asian communities and there aren't really many sort of sporting inspirations for uh, British uh, Hindu or British uh, Muslim girls. Such, do you think that having someone or a competition which is really focused on them and like bringing out people like Adil Rashid or Moeen Ali, that that would be particularly good for those communities and good for growing the game and good for growing sport amongst British Asian girls? Yeah, 100%, mate. I mean, like we said before, they're a massive target market that can be exploited anyway. So, you know, it'd be a great thing to help grow the game. But in particular, in the British Asian community, um, I don't think there's, there's probably less participation amongst British Asian girls, then they would be for their, you know, white British counterparts, um, you know, due to societal societal things. It's patriarchal society, isn't it, largely? And, you know, it may be frowned upon a bit more for young British Asian girls to get involved with sport. Um, so having something like that where they can get involved would be great. And I think, you know, the, unfortunately, there's not a lot of British Asian uh, cricketers, women cricketers that they could look up to and, you know, we've had Isha in the past but largely, I don't think there is any right now but someone like Moeen Ali who is highly respected figure in the, you know, British Asian community in the Midlands, he could be someone that they could look at bringing in to really help promote the game and, you know, I'm sure that if families in those areas, if they had Moeen Ali trying to promote the game and saying, come on, get your daughters involved in uh, playing cricket, it's something that they could probably they probably would listen to and probably would make them think about letting their daughter get involved. So you personally, we've heard what uh, we've heard what Laura had to say. Do you personally see this being 
long per t long term project that you as someone who enjoys cricket as a fan can see you working would it do think you think it would got... get more people going down it's hard I, I suppose the grassroots question is a harder uh, one to answer because there's, there's only time will tell I think that ECB have got a lot of work to do in, in terms of marketing the regional competition in the right way to get people going down I think one thing is for certain it doesn't take time to realise is that it will be to the to the betterment of the of the domestic game as I've already said and there are blueprints from other countries that we've already seen largely Australia where they're getting things in the right they're getting things in the right place in terms of setting up hubs like the, the women's big bash teams um, and getting players come through the ranks and they have a really clear sight of pathway up to the national team girls like Phoebe Litchfield who are only 16 sort of lit up the, the big bash this year and India have got a, a similar sort of thing as well and they've got young players um, coming through their satch as, as I'm sure you know yeah of course they've got um, I mean we've seen in the world 2020 Shafali Verma has just tore it up she was a um, you know real star and there were a lot of people I've spoke about her being sort of big star and role model going forward and we've recently had Jemima Rodriguez as well who's done really well it's actually interesting that um, Australia got a really good women's domestic system and England are starting to build on up because recently the captain of the national team in India uh, Harman Creek Corps she come out and said that actually our domestic system in India is about five years behind Australia and England and, and, and that sort of thing so you know, typical BCCI in India, they're not going to want to get left behind on this. And I think it could it could, uh, could certainly motivate India to really try and grow the women's game even more now. And, and you know, they've got the perfect circumstances for it. We've, the women's game as a whole is growing anyway. India have just been in a World Cup final. We've got fantastic, young, exciting players. Got a really good captain in uh, Harman Preet, as I've said. And, you know, she's played some fantastic innings in the past and um, is looked up to. And Mithali Raj has come out and said recently as well that it's, you know, it's about time now that India start introducing the women's IPL. So, you know, if a lot of these things come together, I think it would want to be good for the women's game in India. But if, as we know in cricket, if India explodes, then cricket explodes. And, you know, it'll feed into the rest of the countries as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. Right. Should we have some extras, lads? Yes, yep, sounds good. So Wisden have released their annual Cricketers of the Year. I don't think there can really be any complaints here, can there? No, as much as I'd want to. Yeah, well, Elise Perry, the most dominant player in world cricket at the moment. She's the leading woman cricketer of the year. It's her world and we live in it really, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think she's probably the most dominant cricketer in, in the world right now compared, you know, compared to her peers. Uh, I don't think anybody else is as far away from the rest of them as she is. The Women's Ashes was just a competition between her and herself about how long she'd go without getting out it felt like um i completely agree with you it's, it's in that it's her world and we live in it kind of thing it, it, she's almost world world apart which i mean it has its positives and its negatives doesn't it because you want the standard of of the game to be you know competitive but uh, the minute she's she's in the last year or so she's set the world alight so much so that it hasn't felt like it at times but fully deserving of, of being in that top five uh category i think every sport needs its god so to speak as well you know we do we do want things to be competitive but every sport does have that leading light who really does dominate and is kids heroes you know like football's got messi and ronaldo we, we've had bradman in the men's game in the past um I th you know i think it's a good thing on balance wikipedia describes elise perry as just a sportswoman because she's also played for uh, for the Socceroos in football as well. It's all a little bit silly, to be honest. Don't uh, you hate those people 
who just do everything. They do my nothing. I know she should be banned. She should be banned from. She should only be allowed to choose one sport and pick it. Didn't both of them have a stint of playing football for Scunthorpe at one point as well? I think he was in the, in the Scunthorpe Academy or something. Yeah. But that was back in the day when like British and Irish Lions were coming back and teaching maths at school and stuff. So <laughs> the ridiculous thing with the least Perry is that after like after about. 50 tests, so uh, ODIs, sorry, half of her ODIs, her batting average was 21. Now her batting average is 52. Now that's growth. That's extraordinary numbers. Steve Smith-esque, isn't it? A good effort to raise it above 50 once you've played half the games and it's only at 20, isn't it? Yeah, and you basically average, surely, at about 70 for... <laughs> yeah. Until but then, she, she did. She did average about seventy odd in in twenty nineteen. In ODIs, I think she scored two tons. I think twenty nineteen's average for twenty twenty is about one hundred and fifty or something, which is super Bradmanish. But that's that Actually is just silly. Quite quickly, M- moving on to the other four cricks of the year, uh, we've got Pat Cummings, best uh, best bowler in the world, probably in Test cricket at the moment. Yeah, no complaints there. Manus Labuschagne, yeah, so. the big new future star I mean you could argue that Mayan Kagawal should maybe maybe sort of challenge him for that but I think in the context of the of the Ashes coming straight into an Ashes series whilst Steve Smith's got concussion and then biting the way through the day out of nowhere getting your place in that team and then scoring silly runs in the winter he's got to be in there yeah 100% I I think it's very deserving of his place I think he's He's absolutely burst onto the scene, and uh, you know he's. I think he's been the best best batsman of the year in Test cricket. Or you know, yeah, maybe. definitely. When and maybe. where would he have got his opportunity if it weren't for Smith? That's my question. Would I, he have I done? think he would. I think he would have made it into the team. So I'm just trying to think. Where, where would he have? He's just. He's, he's enough of a badge up here. But then he's. he's got, I mean, he's batting at. He's batting at three now, isn't he? Mm-hmm. With with Smith, so it, it might have been a case that he would have come onto the scene anyway. But even in his first outing in. Um, Dubai or UAE or wherever it was when they were playing against Pakistan, he didn't he didn't set the world alight. And then had obviously had a season playing for was it Gloucester or Glamorgan? Well, it was Glamorgan and, and and to be fair to him, I think he hit about a, did he hit about a thousand runs? He was a leading run scorer. He was a leading run scorer at the time, and he really um, wasn't there for that long. Just came in and no. bashed, bashed out about yeah. four centuries or so. That that that's another thing, isn't it? Is that in the domestic world in the in first class cricket, he's done an awful lot as well. Yeah, shockingly, he had a good season here domestically and then scored runs here internationally. It stands to reason that having experience playing in English conditions might help him out. But tell that to an English shocking. batsman. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> but he was shocking that, when he was playing for Yorkshire anyway. So. No, I mean, I, I, I think um, Marnus Labuschagne, there was an interesting article on cricket. For actually, you know, the way they do the whole backstory of these cricketers who burst into the scene and I think they did interviews with this coach who said like the only thing that was stopping him from becoming world class was himself. Like he just needed to get that elite level of focus. And now that he's got that, he's 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 reaped the rewards because he has worked hard according to his coach for many many years. He just needed to just put the final final piece in, in much place. the same way as Smith. He's a proper cricket badger, isn't he? Oh, like yeah, the two he, of them apparently, apparently, love and want to bat all the time and want to know how to get better all the time. Apparently that's why them two have got such a big bromance in the uh, in the Aussie Aussie dressing room. They just chat cricket all a little the time. Bit have you heard Tim Payne? Have you know? Have you heard uh, Aaron Finch talking about how he gets angry at Marnus because often he's he's on the field just looking at the big screen at the replays of the wickets while Finch is trying to manoeuvre the field <laughs> and he's just not listening to Finch at all. 
That's how much of a badger he is. So, number four, Simon Harmer. Now, there's normally, there's every so often a big test, uh, big uh, domestic player thrown in there. And my godfather, who's an Essex fan, uh, slightly biasedly reckoned that Simon Harmer was the best spin bowler in the world at the moment. I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> how do you judge that? That's like, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, there's no way of judging it. It's a huge claim either way. But I mean, he'd be playing international cricket if he wasn't a cold bag, for sure. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think his, prob- his, his career to begin with in South Africa came at the wrong time, I think, because yeah. there, is a, there is a renewed focus in South Africa on spin, actually. We've seen quite a few spinners come through and it isn't just all about four paces playing in South Africa now. Um, so it's a bit unfortunate. I think it doesn't he rate himself very highly anyway, Simon Harmer. I mean, he probably thinks he's the best spinner in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. probably but does he case. deserve a place in the top five? I think it's 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 pretty fair. Oh, best he's, bowl, he's, best he's, bowler he's, in English cricket. Yeah. In the domestic I, I think it's, I think it's a big claim to put him high on the list because he's, we have to still acknowledge the fact that the English domestic game is not international cricket. You know, let's judge a spinner when he goes to Asia, when he goes to India and if he can do the job over there, that's when we start. If you can do it over there, where all the, the pitches are healthy. If you can do it on a cold Tuesday night in Bangalore, <laughs> with a lovely spinner's wicket. <laughs> well, but against against the supposed best best uh, players yeah, in the world, that and, is true. And finally, the one that Satch was questioning, Jofra Archer. Satch, do you want to do you want to wade in? Yeah, I think. He's, he's had a great start to his career, don't get me wrong. He, he he came into the World Cup side, won the World Cup, bowled a super over, had a great first test in the Ashes. But do I think he merits being one of the leading cricketers in the world? I, I don't know. I, 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 well, I don't think... Leading I, I cricketers, think, except for the ones that already have been wisdom cricketer of the year. Yeah. yeah, okay, fair You can only be in it once, which they've had to say yeah. about a hundred times on social media. Everyone going, why is it Stokes have, in there? Why is it Stokes in there? We would have Coley in there every year, obviously. Um, I, I, th- I think he's, he, his, his performance has tailed off towards the end of the year, as we've as we've discussed before. I think Ollie's written a piece about has he been overused and overworked and, you know, it contributed to a bit of a dip in his performances. You know, if he's, if he's in there, he's in there based on his World Cup heroics and that, that Ashes test whether he's got the same sort of catalogue of performances over a whole year in the same way that Labashain does, same way that Stokes does and Cummins does, and that Perry does, I'm not as sure, but I'm also biased. I think, it should, be sli- I think it should be slightly said as well that the Wisdom Crickets of the Year, I think there's, there's always a little bit of an English balance towards them. So, for example, 2017, you've got Ben Duckett, Toby Rowland-Jones and Chris Wokes all being in the five. So not saying that they're not very good cricketers and that yeah. other players have won it in the past who then aren't eligible, but there is a little bit of a weighting towards county players than you might have if an Indian magazine did it. But still a still a prodigi- prodigious position to be in. And such, of course, Ben Stokes, the first Englishman to be named leading male cricketer in the world since 2005, unseating your old friend Virat. Yeah, but less said about that, the better, to be honest. I don't want to comment. I prefer not to speak. So, Satch, instead of spending your time talking about Ben Stokes, uh, it's time for you to take part in our new quiz, the ultimate knowledge cricket test. Sorry, I need to reword that. The the ultimate test. Does that work? The, the test. <laughs> That's terrible. We'll go with that. 
Such, it's time for you to take part. That's so terrible. Such, it's time for you to take part in the ultimate challenge. Test. Fuck. Ricket. So I'll give you two minutes to answer a series of progressively more difficult questions, and then I'll add you onto our leaderboard, which at the moment has zero people on it. So you'll be the first one on the leaderboard, and gradually over time will accumulate the great and the good of the wrongen and the cricketing world to assess who has the most cricket knowledge in the entire world. So actually ready to go? Yeah, ready as I'll ever be. What's the name of the three stumps in the middle of the pitch? Wicket. What does the batsman hold? The bat. Use one word to describe New Zealand's Colin de Grandom. Big man. Correct. That's two words incorrect. How many balls are in an <laughs> over? Six. Give me four different ways one can get out. Caught, bowled, stumped, timed out. Who is the current England coach? Silverwood. How many years old is Rashid Khan? 21. Correct. What handed bat is Alistair Cook? Left. Who won the World Cup in 1983? India. Name three of the Wisdom Cricketers of the Year. Labashane, Harmer, Perry. At which ground do Leicestershire play at? Grace Road. Who were the four World Cup semi-finalists in last year's Men's World Cup? India, New Zealand, England, Australia. How many test wickets does James Anderson have? I'll give you a leeway of 10. Five, six, eight. Five, eight, four. How many centuries has Chris Wokes scored for England? One. Which Australian media tycoon is best known for World Series cricket? Kenny Packer. Who took the most wickets at the recent Women's T20 World Cup? Oh, uh, Poonam Yadav. How many wickets did she take? 15. Who is the second highest test run scorer of all time? Sangakara. Incorrect. Ricky Ponting. What was wrong with Dennis Lilly's bat in 1979? Bat. It was made of aluminium. In the 2005 Ashes, how many wickets did Shane Warne take? 23. Who did A.B. de Villiers play for last season in the Blast? Satch Agawal, you have scored 13 points, putting you both top and bottom of the table at the same time. How does that make you feel? It feels a bit bittersweet, to be honest. Some some bad answers in there, I've got to say. Colin de Grandom, big man, is unfortunately two words, and I'm not having any protests about that. Uh, I, I, was, I, was, I, I said it as one word, but I'll, I'll accept. I make the I'll rules. I'll accept the incorrect. I make the rules and I chair this podcast. So I've decided that now is the time for us to end. Thank you very much for listening. Say goodbye, Satch. Goodbye. Goodbye, Ollie. All the best. And goodbye from me. Have a good weekend. Have a good week, even. Don't know when you're listening. (laughs) That'll do. (laughs) 